Welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media. We provide business professionals with insights and ideas for protecting their people from the vast array of threats facing organizations today. Each week, you'll hear advice and best practices from an experienced safety leader. Here's your host, Peter Steinfeld. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Long, the head of global intelligence at McDonald's. As the company's first intelligence analyst, Ryan built the risk intelligence function from the ground up. Today, he lends his expertise in strategy and crisis management, as well as threat and risk analysis directly to McDonald's leadership. Ryan first enlisted in the U.S. Army as an infantryman, but after an inspiring story you'll hear in just a moment, he decided to move into military intelligence once he was commissioned as an officer. Now in the private sector, he's a founding board member of the Veterans Leadership Council, past president of the Association of International Risk Intelligence Professionals, and co-host of the Business of Intelligence podcast. In this episode, Ryan talks about what he learned from launching risk intelligence and executive protection at McDonald's. I know you'll enjoy this conversation. I certainly did. Let's dive in. What inspired you to become an intelligence analyst? There was really a unique combination of factors that that brought me to this field. And it, it goes back way, actually. I grew up in a really rural area. And, you know, there are a lot of great things about small towns, but that world is extremely, extremely small. So I know how cheesy this sounds, but my friends and I used to ride our bikes to the edge of town and we would literally look beyond the cornfields and say, there's got to be something else out there. So I think there's always been this curiosity for me about the world and, and what was beyond my tiny little corner of it. So I wanted to do things and find work that would somehow connect me to the rest of the world. And I don't know where I got this from, but I had this notion of being a global citizen. So that was the way that I felt sort of early on as a kid. And then as, as I sort of grew older, I would say the second major factor was that I always wanted to help people in some way. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what that looked like, what I could do. I actually went to law school eventually because I had this idea in my head that I could serve people that way. But if we take a step back, I would tell you that the military probably played the most pivotal role here. And so, you know, I was in college when 9-11 happened. And as you can imagine, just like a lot of people, that had a profound effect on me. And as an intelligence practitioner, it's ingrained in us to, to ask a lot of questions. And I just remember asking myself, you know, why, why did this happen? Why would anyone do this to us and to our country? And I was really just focused in on that. And I wanted to find some answers to those questions. And so at that time, I was getting ready to commission as an infantry officer. I was in an ROTC program. And then I decided to switch to become an, an intelligence officer instead. And so my subsequent experiences as an intel officer really brought it all together in terms of finding this weird confluence of my interest in international relations and understanding the world and then serving people. So that's kind of how it came all together. And here I am today. That's a fascinating story. Did you have a mentor that helped you along that path or did it just all kind of come together on its own and you recognize those opportunities? It just all kind of came together. I mean, I had been thinking about how can I put these pieces together and find the right fit in terms of what am I going to do after college? I will tell you, I had a little bit of a nudge. I wanted to be an infantry officer, like I said, and I spoke to somebody, actually a a general at the time, who gave me the recommendation that if I want to think about a long-term career, then maybe intelligence was the way to go, you know, after he heard my story and, and the things that I was interested in. So 
I did have a little bit of a nudge, not necessarily a mentor, but, but that nudge was actually pretty profound. Yeah, sometimes that's all it takes. Well, why did McDonald's decide to hire an intelligence analyst back in 2011? What was the nudge that made them say this is important to invest in? I have to give a lot of credit to our leadership. You know, the primary driver was that we had some fairly progressive and forward thinking leaders. My first boss and then my boss now. So both of them, they knew the company needed this and they saw how other companies had been building up this function, you know, since 9-11. And so they wanted to do the same. I think the challenge at the time and still is, is that an organization's culture is king or queen above everything else. And at that time, I'm not sure that the organization saw themselves as this massive global enterprise. As funny as that sounds, I really think they saw themselves as a small business that sold hamburger and fries. And, you know, they were so customer obsessed. There wasn't really time for them to think about this iconic brand and, and this multinational company and how it could be impacted by external factors. So I think when you talk about our field, and I'll just generalize and say the risk management field change ultimately happens when it's forced upon you. And sometimes it happens because something bad happens. <laughs> and so, you know, without going into great detail, we had a close call with an executive of ours. There was a real scare there. And coincidentally, at the same time, my boss was trying to build an executive protection function. And because of this issue with the executive, they got the buy-in, they got the go-ahead. And then they were extremely smart in that they used one of the dedicated headcount for the EP team for an intelligence analyst, which ended up being me and the rest is sort of history. That's really interesting. What was your experience in launching the risk intelligence function? Did you have missteps along the way or were you just flawless from the beginning? <laughs> How did it oh, work out? I was absolutely flawless. I'm here to tell you it was perfect. <laughs> no, I mean, that cannot be further from the truth. And the funny thing is, you know, I love to share my failures with other people because I just don't want to see them have the same missteps that I did. I would characterize my experience as a learning experience. And to this day, I'm extremely grateful because I feel as if I was almost working in a laboratory and I had the chance to sort of try and test new things. I had the opportunity to fail a little bit and I was given the sort of space and the grace to, to fail and, and learn from those mistakes. But early on, I could see there was tremendous opportunity. I mean, we're talking about such a large company and operations and with operations in over 120 countries around the world. And it was just a matter for me of figuring out how to unlock that opportunity. And again, I was given the space and the freedom to figure that out. I think the biggest misstep for me at the beginning was just my sense of identity. And what I mean by that is, I remember vividly thinking to myself that I'm a military intelligence professional. That's who I am. That's what I represent. And I just happened to land inside this global multinational corporation. And I was proud of that. I was proud of that identity. I wanted to be known and seen as the military officer by others because for whatever reasons, I, I thought that would benefit me. I thought that would be some sort of advantage in, in building this function. But the downside of that identity is I tried really hard to bring ideas, ways of working, what we call standard operating procedures, et cetera, over from the military thinking, oh, you know what, these are these are going to easily translate into the private sector. But what happened is, you know, I learned that not everything does. 
I ended up overcomplicating things and I ended up missing the mark on a few things as well. And so at some point, and I, I can't remember the exact moment, but I had this epiphany that I needed a different identity, if you will, but of course, without sort of changing who I was. And so I looked at people that I admired and I looked at people that I respected and I watched how others looked at them the same way. And I started identifying myself and shaping myself in a way where others saw me as a business professional and a business leader first, who also just happened to have this unique expertise in his back pocket that could really help the organization. And so that, that shift in identity and that shift in mindset, I started seeing the difference because I started being more attuned to how others perceived me, how others interacted with me. And I just found myself having more success in terms of getting traction, you know, with the function because of that. Now, from a service delivery perspective, the function's foundation was protective intelligence in support of the EP team. That's what we started with. But I knew from the very beginning, I wanted to expand. And so I went through a, just a couple of mental exercises. One was this whiteboard exercise of listing out all the different services that I thought the, the company could benefit from. And I think I had 20, 21 or 22 things. And as I went on this discovery process or this discovery journey, I got the feedback that they were really interested in about one or two of them. <laughs> so at, at, at first, you know, I was a little bit discouraged, but I hearken back to the sort of collective mindset of people that worked in the company at the time. It was about being customer led. It was about having a, a great customer approach. And so what I told myself was, all right, I'm going to be completely customer driven, even though I know these other things, we, we really do need them, but I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be customer driven. I'm going to deliver on what our customers want and what matters most to them with the idea that, you know, maybe I could build up this credibility bank if I delivered. And then later on, that would give me the opportunity because of that credibility to then bring in some of the other things and introduce some of the other things that I thought the company needed. And so that's what ended up happening. That's really great advice for people who are making that shift from government to private entities. It's a difficult transition because they just operate so differently. Uh, are there any other things you would offer as advice to help people make that transition? Because I speak to people a lot about this and they go to their first few meetings and it's like deer in the headlights, a different language, different thinking patterns, different budgets. What, what else would you recommend to make that transition a little bit smoother? Listen, I can't recommend enough the, the whole piece about identity and, and understanding how you see yourself and then getting a sense of how others perceive you. And those worlds are just different and you have to figure out, you know, how you can adapt to this new world, which is the private sector. But Beyond that, I think it's really just about listening, being observant, collecting as much data and feedback as possible from different people throughout the business in terms of, you know, how are they successful? What did it take for them to get to where they are? And then the second thing that I think is just absolutely critical, we don't talk about this enough, but it's understanding that organizational culture. How do people get things done? Like who are the people, the informal networks, regardless of their rank or whatever position they have, what are the informal networks that are making things happen, that are getting the job done and just really understanding how things work, like the inner workings of the organization so you can learn how to navigate that more effectively. 
Well, speaking of culture and bureaucracy, how did you get buy-in from leadership as you were growing the program there at McDonald's? So that's that's a great question. It's one that you know I talk about with my friends and colleagues quite a bit because it's it's really a never-ending process, as you can imagine. I do have a bit of a controversial take here. I'll start with. I'll just say that when it comes to getting buy-in, I think we have this obsession with metrics and KPIs, and I, I get it, and I know it's it's needed in in most cases. I think it can be slightly overrated, <laughs> and that's that's the controversial part of this because. From my experience, when leaders see and feel and experience firsthand the value of what you bring to the table for themselves, that's all that's usually needed. But I don't want to dwell on that because I know that's not going to be effective for everyone listening. So I'll tell you that one thing that I tried to do early on was just replicate what I saw in the business. And I I talked about this a little bit a moment ago, but At the top of the list was the fact that we were a customer-obsessed organization and a customer-obsessed culture. And so that resonated with me and it made me realize, okay, I I need to mirror, if you will, this culture and this this sort of focus. And so I developed a customer-led approach. That was the foundation for everything. Instead of focusing on, in the intelligence world, we get so caught up in what we call intelligence products whether they're the reports or the PowerPoint decks, we make that the center of what we do. And I said, that's not gonna be the case here. The customer has to be the center of everything that we do because that's the culture of the organization. So, you know, when you break that down a little bit further, to this day, I'm still trying to figure out this exact formula for others to replicate. But for me, when I think about that a little bit more tactically, if you will, there was a combination of things that led to that buy-in. The first was this recognition that I could create a demand for something that leadership needed and wanted. And eventually I just got the impression that they felt like they couldn't live without. And so then I knew that I was on to something and how I got there was just by investing in relationships and listening very closely to people's needs and trying to help people articulate their needs. Because that's that's a really big difference between let's say the government or the military and the private sector is on the public side, you know, you have decision makers that are used to articulating what it is that they want. And in the private sector, you know, even after all these years, the intelligence function is still relatively new. So being able to help people articulate their needs is a great skill. But that what that led me to was just paying very close attention to certain characteristics of intelligence that are really important. So is what I'm delivering tailored to their needs? Is it relevant to them? Is it relevant to the business or is it noise? Is it timely? Because if it's not timely, then it's a waste. And then maybe most importantly, is it actionable? You know, decision makers, they want to use this, these insights to, to take action and make a decision. And so, so that was part of how I got there. But then I think even before that, what might be even most important is the exposure that I needed to grow the program. I invested a lot of time in this exercise of stakeholder mapping and analysis so I could be thoughtful about building and and investing in the right relationships while while also learning as much as I could about the business. So that's certainly an approach I would recommend for everyone. And then to make a, a long story short, before I knew it, I had identified people in my corner who could advocate for me, help me get a seat at the table, And then I also happen to be aware of some naysayers and and let's say what I would call blockers who might pose an issue for what I was trying to do. But 
in that process of identifying a few champions, an executive sponsor sort of rose to the top who really helped me get the exposure and the opportunity that I needed. And then once I had that exposure and opportunity, then my mindset shifted to, okay, now it's all about focusing on service delivery. So that's a little bit of background. I, sorry, I know that was a long answer, but that's sort of how I got there. No, it's, it's fantastic. And it's, it goes to the fundamentals of if you want to fit in in an organization and accomplish something, you have to align yourself and your personal mission and your department's mission with the overall big objectives and culture of the company. If you don't do that, you're not going to get anywhere. If you do it, you can go a million miles. And clearly that worked for you. You're no longer a team of one. So what functions does your team now encompass? Yeah, I think that's great advice. First of all, I'll just say that. And then my team is has really grown over the years. We've been really we've been really fortunate, I would say. The approach that we take, we're a combined group, meaning we combine the risk intelligence team and the executive protection team. So in terms of personnel now, we're in the, the double digits. So we've come a long way since that, that team of one. But we combine those two teams for a number of reasons that I think are worth highlighting for everyone. Number one, we definitely view executive protection as an intelligence-driven function. So it just made sense to sort of put the two together. The second reason is, and it sounds it sounds so silly, but despite being in the same department, we had always supported executive protection. When I say we, meaning the intelligence team from the very beginning, but we still had these silos for whatever reason. We would literally sit next to each other in the same department, but we had silos where we weren't sharing as effectively as we could have, weren't you know, working and collaborating as well as we could have. So we wanted to break those silos down. And then the other reason why we combine the two teams is because we were really looking to maximize the headcount that we did have. And so we started thinking about this concept of hybrid talents. And what I mean by hybrid is, you know, we looked for folks, for practitioners that had experience both as an intelligence analyst and as an executive protection agent. And I don't think those folks grow on trees, but we were lucky enough to find some who did and that really maximized the capabilities of our team because they could serve both functions and they were very versatile and brought a lot to the table and so we sort of kept that mindset ever since and that's just part of our hiring philosophy now as well when we think about experience and and protection and intelligence is how versatile are they can they do a number of different things i think these days we so often focus on deep, deep subject matter expertise, but having somebody who's multidimensional, I think really adds a lot of value. And so that's kind of where we stand right now. Yeah. It's that idea of wisdom versus smarts. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's make it real. Can you think of a past emergency or some kind of scenario that your team managed that resulted in a positive outcome for McDonald's? Yeah. I I appreciate this question because it gives me an opportunity to, to brag about our team a little bit. I think for everyone listening, most of us have lived and worked through at least two major crises in the last couple of years. So there's been a lot of opportunity for intelligence functions to have a major impact. I hate to give the obvious answer. (laughs) You know, I, I always want to try to give something that's a little bit unique, but I am so proud of our intelligence support to the crisis management efforts surrounding the pandemic. And that stands out to me for a few reasons. Number one, it really illustrated the depth and breadth of how an intelligence function can impact the business. And then number two, what we were really able to demonstrate was that intelligence practitioners 
are not just narrowly focused subject matter experts. They're multidimensional leaders. They are trusted advisors and business partners. And so, you know, obviously we provided a range of usual services that you could probably imagine in terms of different forms of intelligence collection and analysis and insight generation. But we were also able to showcase just a broad array of skills beyond just the analysis. And what resulted from that was having a seat at the table for decisions and discussions around really important matters, such as how to keep the business running while prioritizing the health and safety of everyone. And I, I think our company did just a great, great job during the pandemic. And, you know, we're really proud that we played a small role in that. Oh, that's really great. And you probably had to deal with a lot of emergencies on top of emergencies with COVID. It's like, hey, normally we deal with hurricanes, but now we've got a pandemic and a hurricane on top of it. Was there a lot of that that was happening too? Yeah, I think risk and and the certain the threats, the uncertainty, et cetera, that all of our organizations face, it never takes a break and it's never convenient. So yeah, there's no doubt we had to juggle a few things at once. But again, going back to when I was talking about building a versatile team, you know, and an agile team, I think because that's sort of a hallmark of of the personnel that we look for, we were able to manage that. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been a tough couple of years to say the least. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. Well, speaking of developing people, I know that you're active in the Association of International Risk Intelligence Professionals and the Veterans Leadership Council. How'd you become interested in helping others develop their careers and skills? Where's that come from? Yeah, if, if I'm being really honest, I, I have to tell you, I had a major, major challenge after my last deployment to Afghanistan. And I, I think that others who have had similar experiences can relate, whether it's inside or outside the military, it doesn't matter. And there's this quote that comes to mind that sort of summarizes this. And, um, you know, I have to apologize for everyone listening. I, I cannot find who said this. I can't even remember where I got this, but I wrote it down. And it's just encapsulated, you know, how I feel about this. And it, the quote is, what I missed the most was the freedom to give everything in pursuit of something. And so this sense of purpose and mission, if you will, from the military and specifically time spent in places like Afghanistan, I was really chasing that high when I started in the private sector because you know, I'd been given this amazing opportunity and one that I don't know that I necessarily deserved to really build something. And that was incredibly fulfilling to me because I have this, you know, I have a real entrepreneurial spirit. And the way that I describe my job to people is I feel like I'm running a startup within the confines of this massive multinational company. And it's been incredibly fulfilling to me and why I've stuck around for a while now. But as time went on, I felt like maybe there were other things that I could do, or there was even a higher mission, if you will, than just trying to elevate the function. So I started turning my focus to the broader field. I started thinking about ways that I could contribute and give back. I became fairly obsessed with sort of professionalizing the field of risk intelligence because I know how valuable it can be to organizations. So that's really what led to me wanting to help others develop and I just happened to find the perfect organization in Arab. I mean, it's it's a wonderful organization. It's the perfect platform because it was started by friends and practitioners who felt the same way. And so it's just allowed me to sort of give back and help others. And it's allowed me, you know, selfishly to fulfill this sort of need that I have to do something beyond just my my day-to-day -day job, so to speak. Well, speaking of the future, 
it seems like intelligence traditionally has been associated with the public sector, not so much the private sector. So where do you think the intelligence field is headed and how can it reach its full potential? Wow, that's a big question. So let me start with its full potential. And I don't think your listeners want a long form two hour podcast. So <laughs> I will try to get, I will try to keep this short and sweet because I'm very passionate about this. So there's a, there's a couple of things that just immediately spring to mind in terms of full potential. I think one, it can reach its full potential by professionalizing, you know, just like lawyers, just like doctors or other callings that we would consider a profession. And this is going to be a never ending process. I mean, these skills, they are perishable. We have to continue to improve. We have to get better and we just have to professionalize. I think also by innovating and you, you kind of alluded to this in terms of this is not the same as the public sector. And oftentimes we carry our ways of working and, and how we conduct business from the government, government or military over. And it's just a different world. And we really need to break out of some of these paradigms that we still have and really revise our operating model for the private sector. And then the third thing is, I think we just need to be empowered to work across the business. And what I mean by that is getting the freedom to serve those beyond just the traditional security customers, where, you know, as a quick aside, not all functions, but most functions do fall within a corporate security department. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but those functions need to be empowered to work across the business and then get the exposure that's needed to get a seat at the table early on in the decision-making cycle. So I think those three things stand out to me in terms of where the field's headed. I love this question. My friends, peers, colleagues, we talk about it all the time. And when we do, as you, you might imagine, the first thing that comes up is ideas around technology, the use of data, data visualization, AI, machine learning, and just other related topics. But to be honest, what's weighing on my mind right now and, and lately is what I think is this fact that we're, we might be coming to an inflection point. And so on the one hand, there are so many positive indicators over the last couple of years with regards to our field. Job growth, of course, prior to the current economic climate, it, it seemed to be just really booming, which was great. You have industry organizations like Arup that are just working extraordinarily hard to professionalize the field. And then you've got many intelligence functions that really took advantage of the pandemic or the Ukraine-Russia war. So there's some really positive indicators about where the field is headed. On the other hand, the field is still bumping up against these ceilings and, and limitations, if you will, that are being placed on these functions for various reasons. So my key takeaway and what, I, what I've been thinking about, and by the way, I'm actually a very optimistic person. This is not the most optimistic outlook, but if the intelligence function doesn't find a way to distinguish itself as a recognized business discipline, if functions are not empowered to work across the business, and if those same functions continue to be buried within the organizational chart of that organization, then I'm afraid we're going to just be spinning our wheels and there's going to be a major, major missed opportunity for the business world. And you're going to see an exodus of some really talented people into other fields, which is something that I don't want to happen. So I don't think we're on the precipice of that right now. I think it's going to take some time, but that that is certainly top of mind for me. 
Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think that inflection point is not a whole lot unlike the IT world back in the 80s and 90s, where suddenly you saw this new title CIO getting a seat at the table once businesses recognize the value that IT could provide to the business to make it a better entity. And I think the intelligence function is the same. So Intel, risk, security, I wouldn't doubt it if we see those C-level positions popping up here in the next, call it 10 to 20 years, as organizations realize, no, this is a real differentiator for our company, helping our employees feel safe, keeping our executives safe, helping the business grow, keeping our customers safe. It's going to be a, a big change, I think, in the next 10 to 20 years. I love the optimism. I feel better. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for helping me there. <laughs> I, I just hear so many stories and I see the value that, that security and intelligence teams provide to their organizations and more and more executives are recognizing that and they want to invest in it. So that, that's why I have the optimism. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for sharing your journey as an intelligence analyst. Definitely a fascinating one. And of course, all the great work that you do to give back to the field. And it's always fun to chat with a fellow podcaster. <laughs> Thank you. If anyone has questions for you on intelligence or even transitioning from the public to the private sector, how can they find you? Well, listen, I appreciate that opening. I would, I would definitely say you can reach out on LinkedIn if you want to chat and connect. I'm fairly easy to find on LinkedIn and I'm at your service. So if anyone wants to talk about the transition or intelligence, then please just let me know. Also, the, the Business of Intelligence podcast has a LinkedIn page. So I would encourage everyone to follow the podcast and, and just please leave us comments, make requests, let us know what you'd like us to focus on so we can make sure that we're serving you in the, in the best way possible. But yeah, thank you for that offer. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Ryan, and to all of you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. If you like the show, you can subscribe at Alert Media's website or on your favorite podcast player. We'd also appreciate you giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. To learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time. <laughs>